Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of Lit AF with me, your host, Sarah Cohan. I am so excited, as always, to bring you personal and spiritual growth conversations on your own path, your own journey with a healthy dose of humor, because why else would we do anything in life? (laughs) And I'm very excited for today's host is Thais Gibson, who started the Personal Development School. She has been a teacher and mentor of mine for a while. She's just had a huge impact on healing my attachment style, walking this earth with confidence, and really getting curious about healing all the different areas of my life. So I talk about it a lot in the podcast, but she she has courses on shadow work, codependency, all the different attachment styles, healing money stories, forgiveness, which I thought I knew how to do, and it turns out that I had so much to learn, and addiction. Oh my God, just so many things. It's um, It's been such a true pleasure to be a member of the Personal Development School. So I am just honored to have her on the podcast today. I'm going to read her bio so that you all are familiar with what she has done. So Thais Gibson is an author, speaker, and co-creator of the Personal Development School. She is extremely passionate about personal growth, the subconscious mind, and connecting with others. With an MA and over 13 different certifications ranging from CBT to hypnosis, Thais strives to continuously learn and grow. Thais is best known for her contributing work and research on attachment theory and the impact of attachment trauma on our adult romantic relationships. She overlaps attachment trauma challenges with personal core wounds, limiting beliefs, and emotional patterns at the subconscious level to give us deeper insight into ourselves and our relationships. Her book, The Attachment Theory Guide, was written on this topic, and her YouTube channel often focuses on educating people on how to subconsciously reprogram this area of their lives. It's, you guys, this, she's amazing. This conversation is so good. And we talk about all kinds of different things related to attachment style. And then we also end um, the conversation talking about personal needs because being able to ask for my own needs has been the biggest game changer post-healing my attachment style. So coming up with the courage to actually ask my needs, ask for my needs to be met, figuring out what my needs actually are, and also trying to figure out how to meet my own needs in my own way, not to be too hyper-independent, but to be, you know, I can rely on myself (laughs) in a way that I wasn't able to before. So as always, before we get into this week's episode, I want to do my check-in for this week. And my check-in for this week is just the joy, enjoying the sound of rain. I live out here in California. We've been in a drought and this has been like the worst drought in a really long time, like centuries. And I found out how truly bad the drought was from a friend on my birthday. And it led to me staying up all night and stressing about water. And of course, every like bigger earth crisis thing that's happening right now, I'm always like, well, this is a reason not to have kids. Like, why would I bring a kid into the world? Which I don't think anyone ever has an answer on (laughs) why to bring a kid in the world because like it's always going to be hard. But of course, I used it as this excuse of like, we, no one should be procreating. This world is fucked. <laughs> like really just like existential thoughts. And then of course that kind of snowballed into like thinking about the bigger problems and not just in California, but um the entire the entire globe that's happening and hearing things like, okay, what if the Gulf Stream changes directions and just like all of these like really heightened worst case scenario situations. What if what if California ran out of water? And then um, I just started picking up on a little stories about how different cities are actually already out of water. And I flipped. So honestly, this is kind of like a great example of thought work, at least my process in thought work, because most thoughts and beliefs that come into my brain, I'm like, this is absolutely true. We must respond to this danger that is right in front of us. And the sooner that we can respond to that, the better we're going to feel long term. Like quickest solution, must buy into these facts that are in my brain, right? (laughs) And so I started investigating the beliefs and the facts 
And I started doing research on just the state of the drought in California. And once I started doing research on the state of the drought, like, yeah, it it's bad and it's probably worse than I thought it was. But along with all that research came solutions. And basically, I was buying into this like shame and guilt uh, system of like, clearly we're not doing enough and the way that we're doing it is wrong and bad. And what I realized once I started investigating the situation, I realized that we have a lot of old systems that used to work for the amount of water that California used to get. And that's okay. <laughs> like, Yeah, of course we set up those systems. They were probably the cheapest and best systems to set up at that time. But now things are really changing and um, California can't really rely on snowmelt from the Sierras anymore because it's just not cold enough up there. And yes, climate change is um, adding to that. And also, we would probably be in this situation without climate change because of the way that the drought cycles like work in California. So once I realized that basically we're in this kind of um, evolutionary process in this very critical moment of like switching systems and needing to build new infrastructure and changing from um, relying on snowbelt to start to change on um, to new systems like uh, water treatments facilities, as well as desalination plants. And, you know, the two, there's drawbacks with both options and they're very, uh, like, very expensive options and they take a lot of energy, but that has to be kind of the way that we move forward. And so it was so cool doing <laughs> this research project because once I found the action, like once I found out the truth, and then once I removed the guilt and shame from the entire situation, or at least honored the guilt and shame from the situation, because I don't want to just bypass that feeling, and then got to see like what are actual movement steps to go forward, I felt so much better about the situation. And then I stopped amplifying fear towards all my friends about this crazy drought that we're in. And now a couple of weeks later, we're in this beautiful week of rain and the sound of rain is just making me so incredibly happy. And I'm so grateful for it. I'm so grateful for this just cozy weather. It's It's amazing and wonderful. And I'm just going to like pin this with a little thesis statement, like path forward. We still need to make change just because we're having a little bit of water now doesn't mean that we're anywhere near out of our drought and that things aren't going to um, keep radically changing moving forward. So that is my check-in for this week. It's about water. Being worried about sources of water is an ancient, ancient human instinct and fear. And it was a little bit of an honor for me to connect to that because I don't know if I've ever had that. I mean, I've grown, grown up in California in many droughts, but this one just seemed particularly bad with cities running out of water. So it was, it was an honor to connect to that very basic human fear. I mean, it's like a core need to drink water as a human. And to be able to <laughs> thought work my way out of it was really amazing. All right. That's it for my check-in. Reminder, if you are interested in supporting the show, and I hope you are, there are several ways to do it. You can make a financial contribution in the tip jar by visiting sarahcohan.com forward slash tip jar. And if you're interested in catching up on our episodes, following along with what our new episodes, you can hit subscribe in the Spotify or Apple podcast app, whichever app you're listening to podcasts on. And if you're feeling real fancy, consider leaving me a five-star review. Um, I really could use all the reviews I could get. And if just listening is the way that you can support the show, I appreciate that too. So thank you. And without further ado, let's get into this week's episode. Welcome to Lit AF, Thais Gibson. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah. I have learned so much from you about healing my attachment style and so much even beyond that, just about like forgiveness and healing 
my money stories, so many things from the personal development school. So I'm really excited to dig in with you today. We're going to talk about attachment style and we're also going to go beyond that, get into some personal needs and just kind of hear your story and your perspective on all of these things. Amazing. Very exciting. Yeah. So I would just love to hear, how did you come across attachment theory and when and how did you realize how impactful it is? I came across attachment theory originally, actually like in my undergrad in psych, and I didn't think too much of it at the time, quite honestly. Like it was sort of like, okay, you know, this is interesting, your childhood stuff. And I think I was still on my own sort of healing journey at that point, hadn't really begun. I was sort of like a high functional fearful avoidant. I was struggling with addiction still during the time. I It wasn't until like, honestly, I'd done so much other work internally. So it went through like a huge process of definitely hitting like a rock bottom in my life a few years after learning about it originally, and then doing a ton of healing work and becoming better and then actually getting into a new relationship at that point in time and actually discovering like, oh, it's so interesting because we do all this work on ourselves. And then there's sort of this extra layer to do when you're actually in relationship to someone else. And I can remember like looking at the actions of this person and sort of being like, oh, the person doesn't care. But there was always like this conflicting messaging because they would show up in, in really intense situations sometimes and really express a lot of care. And it was hard for me to understand. And then I actually went back and looked at like, oh, attachment theory and relationships and started doing more research about it, came to find like, oh, we have different attachment styles and this is sort of what it is. So it took me down like a, a huge like rabbit hole of really exploring at that point. It was like a catalyst. And I was able to really overlap a lot of the work I was doing at the time, like understanding core wounds and personality needs and all these different emotional patterns we carried as individuals and actually realize, hey, these things fit in like these super neat ways into our attachment style. And like certain people have these certain core wounds and all these people that I was seeing all these patterns around, it actually relates to, to your attachment style. And then it was like, oh my gosh, and this is so impactful. And this stuff comes from your childhood and, and your childhood trauma and a lot of things that are unresolved in our lives. And so there's this really strong overlap. And that's when I became like super, super passionate about it. And I think one of the first things that it showed me too was just like, how to really not take things personally when you understand someone else's attachment style. Like, oh, this is the way they show love. Oh, this is the way they show care. Oh, this is how they respond to fears. It may not be the way I do it. It may not be like through my expectations of what it should look like or how it should be, but like we're all different. We have unique programming and we have different patterns. And so to understand that like really helps you to like work through relationship challenges and, and patterns differently. So it was becoming interdependent in a relationship is when you found that. I love that. That totally makes sense too. Yeah. 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 Can I ask what their attachment style was? Yeah. Dismissive avoidant. Oh. Yeah. So it was somebody I was seeing like very early. It wasn't like a a serious, serious relationship at the time. But then the next person I dated after that too, who's now my fiance and we've been together for almost seven years, he was dismissive avoidant, but much less so. But it's interesting because at that point in my life, like I think relationships always show us to ourselves. And at that point in my life, I had done a lot of healing on like the big things, like a lot of like the big traumas and a lot of like the huge trust issues and, and emotional volatility and like big wounds. But at that stage in my life, when I was like sort of attracting these people into my life, I still had like habits where I was like dismissing myself, like putting my own feelings and needs last and like not paying attention to my boundaries and not really communicating my needs and seeing them through in relationships. So I was like always putting myself at the bottom of the totem pole. And it makes sense, right? Because then you you find somebody who's dismissive avoidant and they're dismissing you to a certain degree and it represents a subconscious comfort zone in the relationship to yourself. And that's part of like what we feel attracted to in other people is is somebody who's comfortable and familiar. And so our subconscious mind, though our conscious mind might say, oh, I don't like this and be upset about it. Our subconscious mind is like, and it's very comfortable and familiar and we keep getting drawn back in. And so at the point where I met my now fiance, I was so lucky because he was really willing to show up and do the work. Like, 12 out of 10, like honestly, at times more than I was. And like, this is my living and what I do. Like he just really showed up. Like I'm always so grateful for that. So we actually got to work through a lot of these things together. You know, he was, I had definitely moved the needle a lot towards being secure just from doing a lot of other healing at that point. But I still had like at least secondary patterns of FA that would show up and rear its head every time, you know, every so often. And he was probably dominantly DA, but but definitely had some secure components and was good at communicating. One of the most important lessons I learned from him 
was that I have to see my needs through all the time. I have to speak my need and he's going to forget sometimes and I have to say it again and just keep like allowing myself to take up space and, and exist and have boundaries and have needs and feed those in the relationship to myself as equal to everybody else, not after everybody else. And so I think like our relationships have such powerful lessons that way. Obviously like attachment theory and, and these different patterns that we learn can provide us with like really cool insights to speed up the process of learning and transformation. Totally. Totally. What was the, um, what was the experience like? Cause I've seen this with a lot of people, like they'll do a bunch of work on themselves and they'll kind of like not plateau, but like you've got like a, a good sense of your own growth and who you are and and then to be kind of like knocked down by realizing that you're in those same patterns again. Like what was that experience? One thing that I learned that I think is like one of the most like important lessons to learn ever on your tra- your path to, to personal growth and, and development is before I got to that point, I had learned the one I would say like this is one of the top three most important lessons is just how to be compassionate to myself. Like I really came from like really strong FA tendencies, really self-critical to the point of like you you like would hurt yourself indirectly. Like someone hurts you and you're like, fine, like I'm not going to do it, you know, and you rebel, but it's actually hurting you too at the same time. And like you're the one that suffers the most. And I learned a lot of like, hey, that like I do a lot of self-sabotaging when I'm angry. Like I do a lot of like pushing things away or if an opportunity isn't going the way I want it, like fine, I don't need this anyways, only to like rob myself of the opportunity. Like so I could go on and on about many versions of that. But I learned like, hey, this is really unhealthy for me. So I learned to be like one of my big goals prior to really digging into attachment theory was just to be like compassionate to myself at all costs. Like I'm a human. I'm going to like mesh it up all the time. Like I'm going to go through like lots of stages where I like make mistakes. That's part of the experience. And I'm going to pick myself back up and support myself like through those mistakes, through those hard times. I'll take accountability. It's not like a you know, I'll turn a blind eye and pretend I didn't make a mistake. I'll see that I made a mistake, but I'm not going to beat myself up for it. I'm going to be like, I made a mistake. Now what can I do? How can I grow? Who do I need to apologize to? What changes do I need to make? So it, one of the cool things about that lesson is that it, it makes you more like you're immune to being really upset about stuff as, as much as you used to. You know, for me, I went in and then start, did all this healing in the relationship to myself and then really got into a more serious relationship and like totally was like, oh shit, like these patterns are coming back. What's happening? And Instead of looking at that and being like, what's wrong with me? My personal growth didn't count for anything. I was able to be like, hey, I've healed a lot and there's still more to do. And to look at it honestly and like support myself. And I believe that forever. Like I think, you know, for the rest of my life, I'm still going to be finding stuff to work on and heal from. And I think wherever we have like negative emotions, pain points, it's not like something we should shame ourselves for. It's something where we can look at it and be like, I haven't loved myself through this yet. Like I haven't figured out how to work through this yet and that's okay. And so I definitely had like a, whoa, like I have stuff here still. And I I thought that I had just done so much work and so much healing and was surprised, but it wasn't because I first learned that earlier lesson, I was able to look at it more objectively and be like, yeah, it makes sense. Cause I had so much wounding around like my childhood, you know, experience of relationships. So of course I'm going to have more stuff to, to uncover. And I think it's an important way to approaching things for sure. Oh my God. Such a better way to approach things. I love that. For me, it's like not just self-compassion. It's like realizing when someone is giving me feedback that it's like, <laughs> it's not like them trying to like bring me even further down because I'm already bringing myself down. It's like, no, no, you're trying to make this better. Like <laughs> such a different reframe. It's the same thing with like the self-compassion. It's like, oh, you know, we're all going to make mistakes and that's totally fine. And this per- level of perfectionism that I was feeling before is not realistic. <laughs> Borderline impossible. Wow. That is so cool. Well, I'm glad that you found Attachment Style because you've been able to create this beautiful program that is impacting so many people. And I'm curious through this, like besides relationships, where else do Attachment Styles show up? Oh my gosh. I would say like they touch everything. So I would say like attachment trauma impacts most importantly, the relationship to ourselves. And like one of the big things that I think is like a really important aha moment for people to have in their own lives is like, if I'm wounded, if I'm still upset about something from childhood, if I still have resentment, if I still have patterns and I'm looking at that and I'm like, okay, you know, for example, me, I'm in my thirties. If I'm looking at stuff and I'm like that thing, when I was eight years old, that affected me for my whole life. That's years ago. Like that's decades ago. How is it possible 
that that is still with me now. And the only way it's possible is we have to be firing and wiring those same patterns and the relationship to ourselves on autopilot this whole time for that to still work. So your attachment trauma from childhood affects most importantly the relationship to yourself, the way you see yourself, the things you fear about life, the things you fear about your own patterns and tendencies, the things you believe about other people, the emotional patterns you're going to have, the unmet needs you're going to have from childhood. So that spills onto everything. And the the reason relationships help us so much is because relationships always show you to yourself. So, you know, if somebody triggers you, they're showing you what triggers you still have left in you. If somebody doesn't meet a need for you and it upsets you, okay, well, you're probably not in a good relationship to the need within yourself right now. So it affects like romantic relationships and then it affects our workplace relationships, our friendships, our family relationships. But most importantly, it affects our feelings of ourselves, our relationship to ourselves, how we show up to support ourselves, how much self-esteem we have. Like because it's the relationship to ourself, it will touch everything, what we believe we're capable of, all these different dynamics. And we get all of those early imprints and, you know, they can all be changed, but we get them all, the really early ones from childhood and from what we come to believe about ourselves through the way we're socialized, the way we're conditioned and and so much of what our upbringing brings to us. Wow. Yeah. So basically it affects everything. I remember doing this work and being like, oh my God, I've been treating my bosses like my parents this whole time. A hundred percent. And not only that, like there's a a co-creation dynamic that we have in our lives. And it's like the subconscious mind, one of the biggest drivers is like it wants what's familiar. So when we go through life, our conscious mind gathers like 40 to 60 bits per second of information. Our subconscious mind and unconscious mind combined pick up like a billion bits per second of information. So we think like what we see, what we feel, what we're aware of is like this is our correct amount of information. We're drawn to so much more beyond what we're consciously recognizing at all. And our subconscious mind is really the one like running the show at the end of the day. And so I think there's certain patterns where we're likely when we meet people, like when you say your boss, for example, if we felt criticized as a child, let's just say as an example, and we really came to believe, oh, I'm not good enough. I'm defective. You know, something's wrong with me. And we have these really limiting beliefs about ourselves because of our childhood. Well, the moment someone criticizes us in our adult life, we're going to be like, ah, they make me feel like my parents, you know, from, from that perspective. But more than that, we're also drawn to people who are like that. So we may go for that interview. We may be interviewing it at three different places and we may meet with that one boss and your conscious mind is like, okay, like this maybe makes the most logical sense as a job. And your subconscious mind is like, oh, I really like that one boss. They're so familiar. (laughs) Meanwhile, they're familiar because they remind you of your parents who like were also some of the people that wounded you. And then you wonder why, like, okay, two years into the job, I'm like, I can't stand my boss anymore. They totally criticize me like my mom. And meanwhile, it's like, well, your subconscious is not only drawn to those patterns, but it is also likely to see what happens with that person through the lens of your past experiences. So it's likely to see that criticism as being like, oh, I'm so criticized. They think I'm not good enough instead of like, oh, my boss wants me to grow. And that's the way they they deliver feedback. So we personalize it and we're drawn to it. I always say this to people, it's like we often don't recognize, but a lot of our world is repeating over and over again in terms of our internal world. We don't recognize it because our external world looks different, but we may feel a lot of the same like core belief patterns, like feel not good enough, the same emotional patterns. We feel, you know, anxious or panicked or afraid or, you know, whatever patterns we tend to have, they tend to be quite similar in our internal reality, much of our lives, but we don't recognize that it's so similar because our external world looks different. It's our boss instead of our mom or it's, you know, whatever those dynamics are. And so it that's when personal development comes into play. That's when, when we start doing the work, we can disrupt those internal patterns and then see our external world change as well. Wow. That is, it's just, I love that we're bringing those experiences in completely unconsciously. (laughs) I always forget that part. I'm like, I'm just recreating everything over here. Like I'm responsible for it all. But like, no, we're also pulling those things towards us because they're comfortable. What about other things? Like definitely money. I feel like I have a very fearful avoidant or I have had a very fearful avoidant um, relationship with. Are there other kind of like object-based things that you've seen people have a relationship with? Yeah. So like if you look at, for example, fearful avoidance, like you'll see a lot of these things. Like if I carry a core belief from my childhood that says I'm unworthy, right, which is a huge FA core belief. Well, remember, your subconscious mind is over and over again trying to maintain its comfort zone. I'm sure you know this, but for anybody who's listening. So if I believe I'm unworthy, I don't believe I'm worthy of 
having anything that I really want. So we are likely as a strategy to maintain our comfort zone because to the subconscious, comfort zone equals familiarity, which equals safety, which equals survival. Then I'm likely to go through my life being like, oh, well, I I just made all this money. I just got this raise and this paycheck. I'm not worthy of keeping it. My net worth can't go up if my self-worth doesn't change. So I get into a dynamic where I'm likely to be in a position where I self-sabotage my relationship to money. Self-sabotage isn't like we sit here and we're like, oh, I can't wait to ruin my own life. It's not a conscious thing. Self-sabotage is when our conscious mind has one goal and our subconscious has another. We see it as self-sabotage, but it's actually a subconscious strategy to get different needs met than what our conscious mind intends. So our conscious mind may say, I'm going to save an extra $500 a month and I'm going to have this much more money by the end of the year. But if your subconscious is like, yeah, but I'm not worthy of that and that's outside of my comfort zone and that doesn't feel safe for me because it's unfamiliar, then your conscious mind tries to pull in one direction, your subconscious goes in another. And then the worst part about that is that then we judge ourselves and we make up a story. So then we go, and I'm a loser because I can't save my money. And it's like so unjust, it's like such an injustice because we that comes from trauma, that comes from woundedness, but we recreate that in the relationship to ourselves and we refeed it on autopilot without recognizing. We've got financial area of our life, career area of our life is affected. Like our jobs, what jobs we believe we're worthy of. I can't tell you how many people I've seen over the years as clients who were like crushing it, like just like so good, like especially like I see a lot of this in like anxious preoccupied, so smart, so capable, so charismatic, great education, all the things they need. And they won't even apply to jobs that they're totally qualified for because they're like, oh no, no, I'm not good enough for that. And it's like, because we believe we're not good enough, then we don't even take the opportunities that would move us to the next level. And then we would look back 10 years later and be like, oh yeah, I'm not where I want to be in my career. So I must not be good enough. But it's at the core belief I'm not good enough became a self-fulfilling prophecy because we didn't allow ourselves to take action, to put ourselves out there because we assumed we're small. We assumed we're not capable. And so we move accordingly in the world. And all of these core belief patterns that we have from our attachment traumas in childhood become self-fulfilling prophecies long-term. So like career, financial, mental, what we think we're capable of learning, how we grow, literally all the seven areas of life, emotional, how we feel about ourselves, our mental health and well-being, our physical body. Attachment style has such an impact on our physical body. Like it's such a big one for people because like people can have such, it affects eating disorders, you know, body dysmorphia, all kinds of like habits we have and, and what we believe and how we treat our physical body. A really important point when we think of our physical body is like we we tend to project all of our wounding onto our physical body so if we believe we're shameful our body's shameful we're body shaming all the time if we believe we're defective oh our body's defective we really notice our defectiveness schema in in that area if we believe we're not good enough our body will never be good enough like we really project that onto self and it's so sad because it's like your body no matter how much you shame it no matter how much you beat it up no matter how mean you are to your body your body unconditionally shows up for you it pumps your heart it circulates your blood it shows up 24 7 no matter what you do what stuff you put into it it's like literally unconditionally loving you and showing up and so you know there's this like disparity like we can project all this stuff onto ourselves but it's like look like there's so much to appreciate and so anyways Attachment styles, attachment trauma affect all seven areas of life, finances, physical body, all sorts of things. It's yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy looking at it in the seven areas of life. I'm like, wow, it just, it's insidious and it's everywhere. (laughs) And I love what you're saying about the relationship to body. And I actually really recently realized that my relationship to my body is my tell. So if I look in the mirror, I'm so embarrassed to say this, but I'm going to say it. So today I was looking in the mirror and I'm like, oh, because I'm, you know, I put on some COVID weights. I'm like trying to like get back into the clothes that I have in my closet. And I was looking in the mirror. I'm like, I must have lost some weight. And I'm like, I don't think, I don't weigh myself. So I have no way to measure this, but I'm feeling good. I'm like, I didn't lose weight. I'm just feeling good. Like (laughs) I'm just feeling good in my relationship to myself as opposed to a few weeks ago where I really wasn't. And so I'm realizing now that really when I'm looking in the mirror, that's my tell to like where I'm at in relationship to myself, which is. I love that. I love that so much. I think that's beautiful. And I think you look (laughs) great and you don't have to worry about anything. Oh yeah. Thank you. That's powerful. Like I think everybody can relate to that on some level, which is like that's going to show you how you speak to yourself when you look in the mirror, what you judge, what you think, how you feel, like huge. Yeah, it's it, it's an interesting barometer to look forward to. <laughs> hey there. I hope you're enjoying this week's episode. I know I am. 
If you're enjoying the Lit AF podcast, I humbly ask you to make a financial contribution to the Lit AF tip jar. Your support will help make this podcast happen. Financial contributions help to cover costs like podcast hosting site, podcast recording software, and it also helps us to pay our amazing, talented podcast editor that brings us these sweet episodes every single week. Monthly and one-off donation options are available, and we've got some sweet thank you gifts for everyone participating. If you're interested in making your financial contribution, please visit sarahcohan.com forward slash tip jar. That's S-A-R-A-H-C-O-H-A-N.com forward slash tip jar. Now back to this week's episode. Thank you so much. Attachment style has been the number one healing tool that I have found to boost my confidence and really find, I think, just such a more grounded place to have interdependent relationships. But I am curious because no system is perfect. Where have you seen attachment style lacking? So I would say like, and I don't want to like toot my own horn kind of thing, but the original attachment theory doesn't actually talk about core wounds and doesn't talk about needs, right? None of that's in there. So we created like integrated attachment theory, which is what I was lucky enough to somehow run into is just in my practice. I actually worked with people in private practice before I ever knew about attachment styles. And so I was working with people and I was seeing a ton of people and I noticed there's like patterns with like core wounds, things we believe about ourselves, unmet needs that we have in our lives, emotional patterns we have on a regular basis, what we subconsciously expect from relationships. So I saw like all these things. Attachment theory does an amazing job of like breaking that stuff down like our attachment style patterns and how our uh, childhood and and caregiver relationships affect our adult romantic relationships and splitting them into categories. But they never talked about like, hey, what do you do? They never talked about like, oh, and here are your wounds to work through. Here's how this stuff affects the subconscious mind. Here's how you can start reprogramming it. Here's some of the emotional patterns. So part of like what I did and created is integrated attachment theory, which overlaps those two worlds. So it actually gives you like tangible action steps you can take to work through those things. And traditional attachment theory and I don't want to like get on my soapbox too much, but uh, traditional attachment. Get on the soapbox. We need. I it. read the book Attached, and it like made me mad. Like it, it, it said, I made myself mad about reading the book. <laughs> but, but <laughs> if we're being honest, but, but it said like there's a part where it talks about disorganized attachment style or fearful avoidant attachment style, and it's like, oh, if you have this one, we don't even want to talk about that in this book. And it's like. Wow, thanks guys. Like way to way to put that out there and then just, you know. And I think it's because there was a lack like in that original theory of like knowing really like deeply how to heal. But we have to remember like when we were children, we didn't come into the world as, as some kind of attachment style. We developed that through core patterns over time. We got programmed and through the same principles we can deprogram or reprogram. And so when we can look at it that way and be like, okay, these are the things we actually need to reprogram. These are things that we can actually change at the subconscious level. That's when attachment theory becomes like that next degree of useful because it gives us like tangible tools and action steps we can take. So I think like attachment theory is amazing. Like I wouldn't be where I am as a human being on my own healing journey without it, but it was definitely lacking originally. Like giving tangibles, giving action steps, giving tools, articulating core wounds into words, articulating unmet needs into words. That's definitely what I would say. Wow. That's uh, please toot your own horn because <laughs> it's amazing work that you have done. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, it's very cohesive and it's very action oriented and it's amazing. I actually haven't I will fully disclose I have not read the book attached mostly because I've heard it's mostly geared towards anxious preoccupied, which I think is great, but like doesn't full show the like full spectrum. So I find that very disappointing. And there's sometimes where it doesn't like empathize enough, in my opinion, like everyone's just traumatized, like all, and I'm not saying like, oh, so traumatized. We're all like just ruined, like, you know, nothing like that, but just like all of the attachment cells, it comes from attachment trauma. Like it's like people go through really, really big pain points and it is like a little geared towards APs and APs like deserve a lot of friggin' love and attention and affection and care and like need that healing and support. And like, it's so great that that's like really showing up to support them. But then with the fearful avoidance, it was kind of like, and you're on your own. Good luck to you. You'll need it. <laughs> and then to- you definitely need it. <laughs> <laughs> and then to dismissive avoidance, it was like, it just wasn't 
empathizing with them as like humans. It, it to a certain degree, like it was explaining and humanizing a little bit. But like DAs go through a tremendous amount of neglect, and and that's really painful. Like that's one of the most difficult things. Research shows that you and you see this in kids too, right? Like the child would rather have negative attention than no attention, and it's like to remove attention and care from an attunement from the parent-child relationship is like extremely traumatizing. So there's a reason why everybody has the patterns they have. And I think it's important to like show care and effort and kindness and compassion to each attachment style equally just for for different reasons. Mm, I love that. Have you ever seen it not apply to a certain type of relationship or have you ever just kind of seen it like literally not work? I would say like if you mean between like a couple and I, I always say this and like, I will really stand by this, like, and, and just to be clear too, attached the book wasn't attachment theory. It was like writing about John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth and all that kind of stuff, just so people don't get confused when they listen. But when uh, I see a couple, I would never really look for like, what's your attachment style? How, tra-? like I would figure that out and like have, that would be a part of the conversation and the work, but like that wouldn't be something I would look as a signifier of like how likely the couple is to succeed. I really find it like fairly irrelevant what someone's attachment style is and like how much trauma they have, like how bad stuff was in childhood. The big signifier I would always look for that was like, number one is are both people willing to do the work? At the end of the day, once you have tools and action steps, like people can get there if they apply themselves and, and put an effort in. And sometimes the the map or the, the roadmap is longer because if you're, you know, 10 out of 10 FA versus a two out of 10 with mostly secure, like you have a different time frame of what you're going to take to heal. But it's, are you willing? At the end of the day, if you want to show up and do the work and if you have good tools to do so, it's going to work in your favor. You're going to have moments where you totally mess up. You're going to have like ups and downs. It's not going to be this like perfect, simple, neat, clean cut path. But it's really like as a human being, when you discover this stuff, do you show up and and keep showing up and keep working through things? And it really can put you in a position where you look back and you're like, wow, relationships used to be so hard and, you know, and now they don't have to be. So I think all this stuff can really work, but I wouldn't necessarily even say that there's like a dynamic that's harder than others. Like I wouldn't say like APDA is harder than FADA dynamic. Like I, I think it really just depends on like the individuals and how much effort they're willing to put in. I love that because it kind of takes out the trauma of or the additional like shame label of the insecure attachment style from the work. You can be anything. You can probably even still be mostly securely attached. And if you're not oriented towards growth, like you're not going to see that type of growth. hundred percent. And it's hard. Like, you know, it's amazingly rewarding, but it's not easy. Like I personally, you know, I th- I was sort of sharing this with you. Like if I had to give myself like out of 10 rating of how FA, I was like a 9.5 or a 10. Like I was pretty high on the, the FA scale there. And really like in that position. And, and I can confidently say I'm like fully secure. I'm always going to have imperfect moments as a human. Things will still piss me off sometimes or I'll have a bad day or whatever it might be. But when you have good tools and you get to reprogram a lot of the, that stuff, it's just like the amount or frequency that you have like a bad moment or get triggered. It just spaces way out, happens way less often. And when it does happen, you're like, oh, it's feedback. There's something in here for me and you can do something with it. And it doesn't feel so like helpless and confining. So I just think it's really important that like whoever is listening at any point, like it doesn't matter what your attachment style is. There's nothing to be ashamed of. That stuff like you didn't raise your hand as a kid and be like, hey, mom and dad, can you please give me these patterns so I can suffer for the next 10 years? Like it it wasn't, (laughs) none of that stuff happened in that way. And so like we can be gentle with ourselves and, and look at it and be like, it's not my fault. It is my responsibility because it's me and my human, but I have to figure that out. And, and it, wherever I'm coming from, as long as I show up and I'm consistent, anything can change. That's so beautiful. I love that. Um, okay. So I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about personality needs because I feel like this beyond healing my attachment style, doing the guilt and shame exercises, like all of that stuff, like just getting comfortable with my own personal needs and then getting in the habit of asking for them and meeting them myself has been huge. So talk to us about personality needs and why are they so important? So this is one of my like great passions before I learned about attachment styles. So one of the first things is like as a human being, we have needs. We, we are not going to escape that. We Our subconscious mind is a needs meeting machine. It's always trying to get your needs met. And basically the earliest place that we learn the strategies for getting our needs met is childhood. 
So a lot of us, until we consciously learn the relationship to our subconscious needs, the strategies we have to get our subconscious needs met literally come from like the coping mechanisms we develop as children. So like a really clear example of this would be, let's say you've got little Tommy and like, let's say little Tommy, he doesn't get attention. He feels unseen and unheard and he needs to be seen and heard and attuned to and connected. And when he's not getting attention, he screams and he throws a temper tantrum and he rolls on the floor and he stomps and then his parents come and they're like, oh, Tommy, like stop it's okay and they give him candy and attention and well so what's happening is Tommy learns at a subconscious level he gets programmed oh when I scream and screech and yell I get attention so screaming screeching temper tantrums they get my needs met to feel seen and heard and connected and attuned to I feel like you're describing me <laughs> okay, I'm, kidding. There. I'm totally kidding <laughs> I'm like Tommy <laughs> is that Sarah <laughs> Sorry, keep going, keep going. <laughs> so, so you see people in their adult lives, right? Like you see Tommy, he's like 50 years old. He's like this business executive and like he feels unseen in the meeting and he's going to be the one to like throw his papers and storm out and slam the door. And it's like, because he didn't change those strategies to get his needs met. So when we don't know what our needs are and we don't develop conscious strategies that we actually choose in our adult lives, we have the strategies of children a lot of the time. And you'll see this show up in our behavior as different attachment styles. And you see this so clearly, like anxious, preoccupied. Like what do they do? They feel such a panic. They need to cling, right? Like hold on, do anything to keep the person close. You know, in my head, I think of like the the child, like holding on to their parent's leg when the parent's going to go out the door, right? It's like it's like the adult manifestation of that. Or, or the FA can be totally the temper tantrum, like the anger and, and emotion and all that stuff. And then you see the DA, like they want to hide. And I think of like a little kid, like going in the corner, right? Like pulling themselves away, hiding. And it's like, we still have sometimes those coping mechanisms that we developed all the way back in that early of childhood. And so how do we change this stuff? Well, we learn to discover like, what are our actual needs? So we have like six basic human needs. And these needs are love and connection, certainty, uncertainty, growth, contribution, and significance. So we have these like needs that like we grow up with and that are like inherently wired into who we are and into our being. And then we have different strategies we build in to like how to get these needs met. And it's super interesting because these become our personality needs. So like you can grow up and you may have this really strong need for love and connection. And maybe you like go around and play with kids and you don't really have a good time. Like maybe kids you don't get along with, you get bullied. Maybe you like feel excluded a lot. So you may like hyper rely on family to get your needs met. And you may grow up to be the person that's like, I'm the family man. And so you build the most positive versus negative associations to that form of getting your need met, that strategy. Rely on family instead of rely on friendships. You can see that in reverse too, where people have negative relationships with their family or a hard time feeling connected at home. And they have a lot of connection in terms of like their their social relationships. And they be, may be the person who's super independent and loves like social time and social connection, community, like these sort of big groups of people. They're very like extroverted and social that way. So what happens is basically based on those six basic human needs, the positive versus negative emotional associations we build in terms of how to get them met, where we have the best versus least good interactions, we're likely to actually build into like our personality as these things we hunger for. It's a strategy to get like these basic human needs that, that drive us on a regular basis. So what essentially takes place is we get into a position in our lives where these become like us feeling alive, aligned, in a really good spot, or when these needs are not being met, we feel like we want to procrastinate, we want to self-sabotage, we have a hard time focusing, we don't do as, as good of a job at showing up for things. And the reason is because our personality needs are subconscious. And so when we have our conscious mind, like let's say for me, for example, so many of my personality needs are, are related to growth, emotional connection, teaching, you know, so I, I love being around people, I love talking, and I love sharing. If I had to go be an accountant tomorrow, you know, that could be a great, fantastic job for, for so many people. But for me as a human, my conscious mind is going to say, go to work, go sit in your office, don't talk to people, crunch numbers, focus. My subconscious mind is going to be like, where am I learning about growth and human behavior? And where am I talking to people? And where am I having deep conversations? And I'm going to feel like I'm wilting. And then what happens is, and it sort of goes in alignment with the goal thing before, is like, 
then our conscious mind has one set of intentions. Our subconscious mind has a totally different set of intentions. Our conscious mind cannot outwill or overpower our subconscious mind. So our subconscious mind is still going to be the one running the show. And then we get into this position where we're like, what's wrong with me that I can't be an accountant? What's wrong with me that I'm so behind everybody else? Oh, what's wrong with me that blah, blah, blah. So we make all these judgments. And so it's super important that what we do as human beings is we like show up. We learn what our actual needs are. We learn how to have strategies to meet them in the healthiest forms possible. So we're not like, oh, I'm going to get my need met to feel connected by screaming or whatever, right? We have updated strategies instead of outdated strategies that we developed from childhood. And we get into a really harmonious relationship to our needs. And that's where we are most successful, most present, most in alignment, feel most fulfilled as people. And that's when we get into a relationship where we can be more of our best selves. And that plays right into our romantic relationships because it plays literally right into if we don't feel like our our personal needs are being met in our romantic relationships, that's when we start to feel frustrated because like it or not, our subconscious mind is a needs meeting machine and it does use our romantic relationships as a form of how we get our needs met. And so if you have like yourself, for example, you probably have a high need for emotional connection. Let's say you get into a a romantic relationship with somebody who just doesn't care about that at all. Unless you're having a conscious conversation to compromise on things and create time to have more emotionally oriented or deep conversations, it's going to feel like a loss for you, right? You're going to feel like you get in that relationship and, oh, this thing is actually taking time away from my need rather than contributing to it. So it's really important that we know as individuals what our personal needs are so we can get into harmony with them, advocate for them, show up for them. And it's It's also really important that we then learn how to communicate those things externally so that we can feel good about the people that we're around and they can really know us and see us and help us in the path to feeling fulfilled. Can you share like when you started to realize how important these needs were and you were stating them out loud, can you share an experience of like when you started to get like your footing with being able to actually ask for your needs to be met? This came a lot later for me. I did a lot of like very intensive healing, a lot through like meditation, like emotional regulation, a lot of like questioning my stories, a lot of like reprogramming my subconscious core wounds. And then I would say like actually becoming good at meeting my own needs and like showing up for them. I got good at myself and like did a lot of like the independent work first. And then I would say the real lesson came for me, like after I learned about attachment styles and attachment theory, after I was like already in a different place in my life. And it was like in this relationship where it was like, oh, I now have to express my needs and see them through. And and there were a few things that were really important. First, I noticed that I would feel frustrated, right? I would feel resentful, like, oh, this person's not even trying to meet my needs. Then like upon more reflection, I'd be like, Oh, and I'm not really communicating them clearly. So <laughs> no wonder because people are not supposed to be mind readers. So, you know, I was like, had the awareness luckily to be able to look at myself honestly and be like, yeah, and I'm probably scoring. So it's really useful to like actually score yourself from one to 10. Like how much and how frequently and with what intensity am I actually communicating my needs? So I don't just like fall into this really bad trap that we can all fall into of you should know my needs because I figured out yours, right? And it's like, no, that's not how life works. And people are not all as adept as each other at figuring out other people's needs. Some of us have more or less conditioning towards that or away from it. So I think it's really important to like be in that position first where we can really truly see where we're at at communicating. And then If we want to be good at communicating our needs, we have to learn to see them through. Just because we said it once, and this is like the trap number two that people fall into, it's like three years ago, I told you my need for this thing. And how dare you? It was so vulnerable for me and you forgot. And I can't believe you and I can never trust you again. And it's like, we're humans. Like we can't just remember things forever. Like, and, and so in our most intimate relationships, we have a duty to show up and actually see our need through. Someone forgets, we'll remind them. Not a big deal. It really raises our own self-confidence because we teach in the relationship to ourselves that we are worthy of advocating for ourselves in our relationships. We're worthy of like allowing ourselves to take up space and like have conversations and, and talk about this stuff. And then number three, when we are communicating, we have to be clear. You know, a huge thing I saw in my practice is like, you know, we have a conversation and the couple would say, we're going to make each other feel more supported this week. And then they come in the next week and like Mary all week, like did acts of service for Bob and Mary like 
did all the dishes and did all the laundry. Meanwhile, Bob wanted like physical affection to feel supported. He wanted like more hugs and more like handholding. And because both people didn't communicate what that need looks like to them, they missed the boat. And so, you know, those are really important parts. And I think for me as a person, I fell into all of those traps at the beginning. Like I first was like, oh, I'm not even (laughs) communicating my needs. So no wonder they're not being met the way I want. So then I like tried to level up there and communicate them. And then it's vulnerable at first because our subconscious associations to talking about our needs in childhood are like, usually if we had a a good bit of attachment trauma, even if we talked about our needs, they weren't going to get met anyways. Or we were bad for communicating our needs or we were a burden or whatever kind of programming we picked up. So it can be scary at first. And so then I remember feeling at times like, I communicated my need and he still forgot. And, you know, like, I'll never speak to him about it again. It's fine. I'll just meet him myself. I don't need him to meet my need anyways, right? But then we get into a place where you're like, okay, and I'm self-sabotaging. I'm hurting what I actually want the outcome to be. I'm, I have an outcome that I want. I'm taking something that happened once and I'm taking the own outcome away from myself at the end of the day. And so, you know, it's a good thing to remember as if you're a full avoidant because there's many reasons that, that we can fall into that trap. So then I would be like, okay, I have to see the need through. And I think it's really surprising as long as you communicate clearly and specifically, like people show up, like people that we want to have in our lives and want to spend time around. If we show up and we're gentle about how we talk about the need, we communicate in a healthy way and we're consistent and we're descriptive, like people really want it. Like, people care to do that stuff and and anyone worth spending time around will show up in that area and it'll be a really quick way of finding out like who belongs in your life and not as long as you you have a nice exchange you're bringing to the relationship too a hundred percent I love that I even just last night I was schooled I schooled myself in asking for my needs and literally I was doing that thing of like connecting means anger and you know like if I can think my way out of this problem instead of feel my way out of this problem and ask for that need to be met, then it'll be solved. And the moment, you know, I was in a big fight with my husband and like the moment that I switched to, oh, I have this need and I just need you to support me. It like snapped both of us out of this like trauma response. And then we went into immediate like need meeting machines. And I was like, (laughs) you know, I'm like literally sobbing and he's just like holding me and I'm like, wow, I don't even have enough time right now to come down after that fight because like everything's happening so fast. And it was just such a wonderful, my husband listens to this podcast. So thank you, baby. But like such a wonderful tool to have that I've learned through PDS of being able to know what the need is. And then the next step is ask for it in a way that can be heard. And I love what you're saying about being specific because I miss the need cues all the time, like all the time. And so the more specific they are, even just knowing the communication around it can be so helpful for for other partners. 100%. I love what you said too is like the vulnerability of it, which is such an important part. And like it really is – I know exactly what you're talking about where it's like you're in your trauma response and like it's so important for people to hear that is like you can be in that trauma response and you're like defensive and like no and like you need to be right and you're in that space and then it's like the moment you just introduce vulnerability you just say what you actually need it can actually have the power to snap both people out of that state because vulnerability is like oh yeah you just have a need oh yeah you're just feeling afraid or you're just feeling unsupported or okay and it can really transition the conversation into something beautiful and connecting instead of like in that cycle of like tit for tad and back and forth. And, and so it's a beautiful, beautiful thing, especially in the heat of a moment to, to discuss. Totally. Totally. I remember I was on my honeymoon on a bus in Mexico watching the webinar for like the fifth time about personality needs. And I'm like, I could literally give Thais's talk about personality needs. I've watched this so much. (laughs) And it was that, it was literally that webinar, that workshop that like helped me in that moment. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you. But you're doing the work like as much as, you know, it's, it's not easy. It's like, it requires courage and vulnerability and like you have to be willing to show up and like that's one of the scariest things when our conditioning is like well when we did that in childhood it didn't work and it hurt and so you know I really admire like every single person going through the work and doing it so it's amazing that you're doing that and especially in the heat of the moment that's like huge huge growth for sure it's huge it's so huge thank you thank you for seeing me I appreciate that (laughs) uh okay so who are your mentors and guides currently in your own healing practice 
I would say number one, uh, someone I always listen to is Byron Katie. I like love her. Um, she really has that question of like, can you 100% know that it's true? And it's like, it's the same thing you learn in CBT, like cognitive behavioral therapy, like questioning your stories. Can you really know? But she has sort of this process called the work where you then do these turnarounds. It reminds me a lot of shadow work. Like I feel it. Anyways, I just love her. I will always listen to her. It's like my core sort of go-to on a regular basis. Another person that I found myself going back to and listening a lot to lately is Wayne Dyer. He was like my beginning mentor on a lot of my journey and like really like diving into a lot of his stuff. He was like the first real like person that I listened to on my growth journey. And I'm really into like a lot of like texts, like sort of spiritual growth stuff. Like I read the Tao and I like go through the verses and like think about them and sort of work through them. And he has a great book that I'm reading right now and it's um, change your thinking, change your life, but it's his interpretation of the Tao. So I, I love that. And um, I really like Eckhart Tolle. I'm, I'm reading his book right now called Stillness Speaks. It's like a very short book. And the way I tend to work as a person, it's probably like the fearful avoidant in me. The programming is like the, I, I love the novelty. Like I, I won't necessarily sit and like go through a book back to front. I'll like do like some of this book and then I'll go back to some of this book and that book. I would say those are like the three main people that I listen to right now. Oh, I love that. I love the work of Byron Katie, and I actually feel like it dovetails so nicely with your work. Her work is just so simple. I'll link the worksheet below or the the work worksheet below. It's just amazing. I love that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. She nailed it. Okay. I kind of want to just ask you like random questions, just in your own opinion, like traits or things that you've noticed about certain attachment styles, kind of like a rapid fire. Okay. So which attachment style have you noticed has an intense need to be famous? Okay, so I would say out of anyone, I would say APs lean that way more because they want to feel significant, right? They want to feel like by their partner usually, but when there's none that need, it's like wanting to get that approval, wanting to get like a lot of their identity relies on the external validation approval, right? That's how they fill their cup to feel loved, connected. So so I say I would say primarily APs if I had to put one. Sometimes I notice DAs because they feel really unseen. They can have like a it's not necessarily to be famous, but sometimes like sort of this desire to to be like really seen by other people, like put out there, like sort of on a pedestal, but they won't like it for superficial reasons a lot of the times. They tend to want it to be about like the work that they do or or things like that as opposed to them as a person for something, right? Because they have that shame and defective. So they don't truly want to be seen, but something about them, they sometimes want to be seen. And I would say FA is probably the least, but I would say because they have learned to obliterate their sense of self to stay safe and, and sometimes having the spotlight on them too much can feel really scary and overwhelming and something they totally shy away from. But I would say Fearful avoidants are extremely hardworking and they believe that they tend to have a belief, and this is most fearful avoidance, that... In order to be worthy at all of love, of a relationship, of normal human everyday things, I have to stand out in some way in order to even be be safe to be loved. Um, because a lot of FAs think that, oh, you know, I'm in a relationship and I'm not good enough or, or stand out enough in some form, then the person will get bored of me. The person will lose interest in me. The person will think I'm not, you know, and so they tend to feel like they have to overcompensate in life, which can sometimes lead them to places like that more often. Um, okay. What about a CEO? Probably a fearful avoidant or a dismissive avoidant. <laughs> <laughs> and why? Fearful avoidant because, again, they really push themselves. I, fearful avoidance, like, very much immerse themselves in many things, sort of push things to the next level. They're generally pushers in life. Generally, people who are like drivers want to push things along, have a hard time settling. Some of that comes from nervous system dysregulation. Some of that comes from if you've grown your whole life in chaos and fight or flight mode, then that's your subconscious comfort zone. So you are the challenge, no problem. I'm used to being in a challenging environment. The <laughs> the subconscious comfort zone checks the box. And then there can be a novelty component. So always growing, always pushing, like there's something new. There's some of that like exploratory component as well. Um, so I would say FAs that way, DAs, because DAs can get a lot, of, a lot of their needs met from immersing themselves in things other than human relationships. So they'll often rise up in the ranks of what they do. But I would actually say like if we were really going to say something, I would say like probably FAs, very high correlation with 
with that type of role, CEO. And then DAs, you'll see a lot in like the sciences, a lot in like the web development, programming, that kind of space as well, because there's like less interaction with humans and more interaction with things that are like safe and clear and predictable and that they can really use their mind and mental faculties in, which is where they've often spent a lot of their time kind of inhabiting. What about creatives or artists? Have you have you noticed any crossover? I'm curious. You know what? I would say there's a, a good portion of DAs that actually get a lot of their needs met um, or got a lot of their needs met historically from like you have to imagine, right? If you didn't get your needs met as a child from like parents, a lot of them get their needs met through like movies and stories and feel like there's some kind of emotional connection in a safe and predictable way through like characters. So I've seen actually a good portion of DAs, which is like kind of the polar opposite, right? Of like the the mental faculty space, but there's a good portion of DAs who definitely go into like creative things like like the arts or production or, you know, get interested in that. And then I would say also APs. So I would say FAs the least likely because they really like to be in reality. Like I find that FAs don't like to participate in things that are too outside of like what improves me as a person or how I how I figure stuff out as a person, probably because you come from a, a greater state of trauma. So like, why would you waste your time, quote unquote, not that that's a waste of time at all, but on Get things that brain. won't help you survive, right? That won't help yeah. you like, how could I afford to even go into like something like that? I have to figure out how to like live and exist. And so I, I feel like that's sort of why. Because I see FAs kind of like pulled away from that a lot of the time. But APs are definitely like very creative a a good portion of the time and and exist within that area. But I would say there's like a a substantial part of DAs that polarize and go the exact opposite way and end up in like the arts and like feel emotionally connected to characters and get their needs met through like DAs more than anybody. Like this sounds funny, but it's not meant to be like negative. It's just interesting. DAs more than anybody, like they live in their fantasy world as a coping mechanism when their needs weren't met in childhood. So DAs more than anybody are likely to get like crushes or like infatuations with like TV characters, movie stars. Um, I've had a lot of like DA clients over the years say like, oh yeah, I had a crush on like a cartoon character as a kid. Like, but it's like the traits that that are being presented. It's like kind of cute, but it's like the traits that are presented that they're not getting their needs met within. So those characters represent those things that they hunger for and long for, and it can create that feeling of infatuation. Mm, I love that. That's funny hearing that because, um, I mean, everyone on this, every everyone listening knows that I'm a fearful avoidant. But uh, growing up, I hated musicals. I was just like, we don't have time for this. <laughs> this is a waste. How is this going to serve me? And I really like throughout my life, I've looked at TV and storytelling as a way to learn how to heal and cope and all of these things. So. I've since started listening to musicals. Don't worry. <laughs> but it's just funny <laughs> to hear that. It's really interesting. Yeah. I see a lot of fearful ones have like a lot of impatience with things that aren't applicable to like getting ahead, surviving, growing. Because like if that's – if you grew up in chaos, it's there's no time – in wartime, there's no room for – for stuff like that. So I think there's a part of programming that plays in there, especially if there's more intense stuff that you were exposed to at, at a young age. Fascinating. That is so fascinating. Okay. Didn't any of those categories inspire something else in your brain where you're like, oh, and this like interesting type of archetype is prone to this attachment style? Not that I can think of. Like I would definitely say there's some some common ones. Like I would also say fearful avoidance tend to be in like healing arts a lot of times, like things related to counseling, those sorts of professions, a good bit of the time, a a huge interest in human behavior, right? Because like, what is your whole mindset conditioned towards? It's like, learn to understand the chaos in my environment so I can survive and cope. So there's this constant like reading between the lines. Also, fearful avoidance can be quite like the good detectives and investigators because they they have that dynamic as well, right? Like they can, you know, good PIs kind of thing. DAs, I would say huge. Like you see a lot of DAs who are excellent scientists, like anything where there wasn't there weren't needs being met in like that that physical form. So it's like that practical nature, anything practical as well. So like tools, the trades, we'll see some more DAs there. And again, like there are total exceptions to stuff. This isn't like 100% of the population. These are just emerging patterns that are worth saying, yeah, there's a, a good chance that a large portion of this attachment style is distributed in that area. And then again, DAs can have some, some artistic people um, to a certain degree. And then, yeah, APs definitely tend to be a lot of the the arts, the the movie stars sometimes, the, the things related to relationships in general. They do well as managers. They do really well like working with people, like client-facing salespeople, um, anything that involves like 
charisma, you know, like showing up and being around people, anything that involves like having a team of people you work with, they really tend to thrive. And the opposite of that, like if you have them without that and that's taken away, they can feel like they're wilting, right? And so, so yeah, I would say those are some of the major dynamics for sure. That's fascinating. I know it's not hard and fast, but it's, it's so interesting to learn this stuff and start to notice the patterns that emerge because it, it helps me understand myself and then it really like just helps me honor all of my relationships that I have, which is really cool. Oh, okay. Well, is there anything else that you would like to share with us about any of your work? I would just say you're amazing. I really enjoyed chatting with you and this is really fun. And I think you make people probably feel really comfortable. You know, it's fun and it's interesting and, and all sorts of things combined. So I, I really enjoyed this time. Oh. Oh my gosh. Thank you. I appreciate that. And if someone is interested in um, learning more about you, following along with what you're up to, how can they find your work? Yeah. So we have a YouTube channel where I put free daily content out. It's personal development school dash Thais Gibson. And then we have our website where you can check out different courses. We do a seven day free trial and it's www.personaldevelopmentschool.com. We have like 45 different courses on there. We usually add a new one every single month. So lots of stuff on there about reprogramming your attachment style, healing, communicating boundaries, you know, all different things. And um, yeah. And so that's there. And then Instagram is personal development underscore school. Amazing. Go check it out. On their website, they have a free attachment style quiz. I take it all the time just to see where I'm at in my own life. It's really fun. And yeah, I just sign up now to use the free trial. It's it's just amazing. Thank you. <laughs> Don't wait. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. This has been amazing. I love this. I really, really enjoyed this. Thank you. That's it for today's show. Thank you so, so, so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed. If you have a moment and you're in the Apple Podcast app, please rate and review the show. I could really use all the ratings I can get. And please share this episode with a friend that may benefit from it. Of course, hit subscribe to keep up with new weekly episodes. And if you're interested in supporting the show and being part of the Lit AF community, Join our Patreon by visiting sarahcohan.com forward slash tip jar. That's S-A-R-A-H-C-O-H-A-N.com forward slash tip jar. Thank you again for listening. Please stay lit, lit AF, and I hope to see you back here next week.